I hope you have a Bible this morning to hear God speak as well. If you don't, grab one there in the pew rack in front of you. And as you're grabbing that Bible and turning to Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning, I I just want you to stop and consider as you hold that book in your hands, our Bibles this morning. I mean, we hold this this Bible in our hands. The children are going to open God's word and hear Him speak and And so will you and so will I this morning. Some of these are study Bibles. Some of them are large print Bibles because those of us with trifocals need some help. Amen. And um, some are tattered and torn. They've been well used. Some are brand new because of new faith in Christ and a, a new appreciation for realizing, you know what, I need to grow in my knowledge of who God is and and the word is key to that. But but as you hold your Bible this morning and turning to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I just want you to think for a moment about the significance of this book that you and I hold this morning. This is this book is different than every other book that's ever been printed. Amen? This this book is unique. This book is is distinct from all of those. This is the one book above all other books because it is the only book that's inspired by God. The words that we read. And and as we gather to worship this morning, what we realize is as we hold this book, in fact, sometimes you know when you you have your quiet time and you just take that word for a moment and just think about, I'm going to open the word of the living God. I mean, just think about this for a moment. There's only one God we're going to talk about today. He's one. The one true God has spoken to us. Our God is, is heard. He's not seen. He's not an idol. He dwells in an unapproachable light. But He's spoken to us. He, he's revealed Himself. And we need Him to reveal our, Himself because He's so much more than you and I would ever imagine. We, we would never come up in our thinking that, of, of this God. He, he's beyond that. We, we need Him to reveal Himself. That's why this Word, the living Word that we hold on to, the Word of the living God... It shows us who God is. This is why it's so significant. Now listen, when when Moses came down from the mountain, he had the tablets in his arms, right? He he went up to hear God speak, what God would say to his people. And Peter says over in in the epistle to 1 Peter, he says, you know, if I was to preach or you were to teach the word of God, we, we should preach, we should teach as though we have the, the oracles of God in our hand. And we feel the weight of what's being said. This isn't just some book that we're opening today. This is the words of the living God who speaks to us. And, and we're turning to a very important passage where, listen, the Jews were there and they made a great confession of faith. God said, this is who I am and this is who you should be. God isn't who we would think he should be. He he, he has to define himself. And when he defines himself, he also tells us, this is how you you present yourself to me. This is how we live in relationship. Not based on who you are, but based on who I am. And because of who I am, this is who you should be if if you want to relate to me in the proper way. And in this section of Deuteronomy 6, it's not just a great testimony about who God is and, and what He's like, it's also the realization that, that, that I need to live in a particular way. Now see, sadly, too many today don't really know who God is. They have figments of their imagination or they have traditions that have been passed along and they don't really know God as He is because they never opened this book. They never hear Him speak. In fact, there's so much confusion today. How many gods are there? Are there many gods? I mean, we live in a culture where they think that there's many gods. Or is there just one God? 
I mean, the Christian faith is the affirmation that there's one God who exists in three persons. There's one essence, but three persons. We'll focus on the Trinity in two weeks. But, but we affirm today the truth that there is only one God. And now this is profoundly important. Think about this first for a moment. There can only be one God who sits on a throne and calls the shots. This isn't Eastern thinking with yin and yang, two, two gods opposed to each other. You ever seen that symbol? You know, the circle with the... No, no, no. This isn't one ebbing and flowing and control and power. No, no, no. There's one God. There has to be just one God who calls the shots, who's sovereign, who's, who has all the power. Because think about this for a moment. There can only be one Almighty, right? There can only be one who has all the power. There can only be one who, who is eternal, has always been. He's the creator of all things. And that's our God that we worship today. In fact, not just sovereign and eternally God, but also there can only be one lawgiver, one standard of measure. And that's the God we worship. You see, being one is significant in a myriad of ways. And, and, and it's vital that you and I understand that the one true God, He tells us who He is and what He's like. And then when we distinguish Him from all those other false gods, and there are many of them in this world. In fact, if you go over to the Hindu religion over across the sea, you'll find out that there's millions of gods that they believe in. Which one has all the power? Which one tells us how we should live? What if they contradict one another? And they do. Think about it for a moment. This affirmation... That we declare today that the word of God reveals to us that God is one is absolutely critical to understand. In fact, God has said in his word that when we fashion imaginations of our minds with our hands, that it's absolutely worthless, that little idol, that God that we would make. And Isaiah would say it over in Isaiah 44. He would actually mock God's people and say, can you believe you actually do this? You go and you cut down a tree and you make a little fire for your porridge. And, and in the meantime, while it's warming up, you, you whittle yourself a God so that you can put him up on your mantle and bow down to him and thank him for your porridge. It's just foolishness. You see, we've been learning about the one true God, full of grace and full of truth and full of glory. The one who is sovereign, the self-existent creator of the universe. The one who is spirit, eternal, immutable, personal. He knows all things, is all power, is present in all places. He's unchanging the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's a holy God who is perfectly just, full of grace and mercy, who loves us and is true and faithful, full of compassion. He's a God who judges sin. He's a God who forgives sin. And praise God, He's our God. He is one. In fact, what's amazing, and when you get to the New Testament... The one God has one faith that we should believe. We are one body filled with one spirit. We have one hope of his calling. There is one Lord and one faith that we profess. There's one baptism that we've all entered into who are believers. And it's not through those waters, but it's through the baptism of the death of Christ and his resurrection. There's one God and Father of all. As Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. You see, it's this characteristic that sets God apart from all the other gods. And even in the monotheistic religions of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, 
our God is distinct from theirs because our God is a triune God. And we'll focus on that in two weeks. Islam says they worship one God. We say we worship one God. But their God, Allah, is not our God. Because they deny Jesus Christ is his son. They deny the Trinity. You see, everyone in this room has a choice which God you're going to worship. God doesn't force anyone. You choose. We all choose what God we're going to worship. Some will choose the many. In fact, Joshua, when he confronted God's people, he reminded them of God's faithfulness. And he told them, listen, it's time to choose the one true God. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the one true God. Elijah, when he confronted God's people as well on Mount Carmel, he reminded them, listen, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Well, Baal wasn't God. But Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah, he is the one true God. And everybody has to make that choice. Make that choice today. Just as Moses speaks here in Deuteronomy 6 and put it before the people. And so in a moment, we're going to stand. In fact, if you will, stand with me now. We're just going to read verses 4 through 9 because of time this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then I'll just back up and tell you the context of this story. Now listen, in verse 4, there's a significant word. It's called Shema in Hebrew. It means hear. This is the great Shema. Remember, our God is not seen. He's heard. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your home and on your gates. And Father, may that be true today that, Lord, our confession of who you are is because of what you've shown us in your word. And that, Father, our confession, Lord, evokes from us the right response to love you and to be committed to you. And Lord, I pray if there's any wavering today before me about what God we serve or who he is or what he's like, if there's any wavering in our hearts about our loyalty, our commitment to you, God, I pray that you would remedy that today by grace and mercy and we would turn to you and that, Lord, we'd, we'd stop wavering between opinions and we would stand firmly on the truth of what you speak in your word. And God, I pray that the world around us would know that we are committed to the one true God. We ask this all in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. And all God's people said amen and amen. In the context, Moses is speaking uh, to the children of Israel. Now remember, this is Deuteronomy, Deuteronomus, Onomus being the law. It's the second giving of the law. Why? Why does the law have to be repeated? In fact, over in chapter 5, that's where Moses begins repeating the law a second time. And it had to be given because when God led his people out of bondage in Egypt and brought them through, uh, out through the Red Sea, they got to Mount Sinai and and then they got the law, and when they went to Kadesh Barnea and could have entered into the land, they lacked faith. And because of their lack of faith, they weren't allowed to enjoy all the promises that God had for them, the promised land. And so God said, this generation can't enter in. These, these, 
these have, they have not had faith. And so as a result of that, only Joshua and Caleb, two of the 12 spies who said, let's go, we can take this land. Our God is greater than, them, than those that dwell in it. Because of that, all of those people had to die in the wilderness, except for those under a certain age. And a whole new generation was born. And so because they were the ones who weren't at the mountain, they didn't receive the commandment of God. Now God is going to give them the commandments again just before Moses is going to repeat them starting in chapter 5 before they enter into the promised land. And they are reminded the same principles that, uh, that they were to live by as, uh, as their fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers were, were uh, at, over in Exodus chapter 20. And so as the law is given a second time, Moses reminds them that this is the commandment and these are the statutes and ordinances which God has given us. There's one commandment that stands above all the others. We realize that, right? Remember, even the, the, the lawyers in Jesus' day said, listen, what's the supreme commandment? Because there's only one. In fact, all of them, Paul would say in the book of Galatians, they hang together on this one law. And it's love. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one's like it, right? Loving your neighbor, what? As yourself. On that holds all the commandments of God. Now here, Moses is repeating that. And he's reminding him that, listen, we're to be loving God-fearers. And we have a responsibility to teach our sons and our grandsons that this is how God, because of who he is, expects you and expects me to live our lives by faith. And in order to do that, we need to realize, not only that, we flesh out our faith, we live in a particular way, writing this word on our hearts, internalizing it, teaching it to our children. It's seen in every aspect of the way we live, whether we're at home or, or going in the way, when we rise up and when we lie down. It's evident in our homes, your life, my life, our homes, are, are, are to be a testimony to the world around us that our allegiance is to the one true God. Our faith that we flesh out from chapters 12 through 26 of Deuteronomy, just there's even more of an explanation of these simple principles that are found in the, in the Ten Letters or the Ten Commandments. And we're to live that out and flesh that out. Now the truth is, none of us can. That's why Christ had to come. None of us could keep the law and all that was required. I mean, if you stumble in one point, you're guilty of what? The whole thing. So Christ came to fulfill what you and I could never fulfill. Well, then why is it significant? Why is it important? Well, you see, it's important because it's not just tablets and the weight of it that we can't keep it. Now, no, when we are saved by grace through faith, the law becomes internalized in us. And God, in his covenant now, promises us the power to keep it, not by our strength, but by the Spirit of God. And we do that in response to the great love that God has shown us, we just love Him back and we, we obey Him in what He's commanded us to do. Now, now Moses is teaching this generation about this. And he's saying, listen, there's a faith that we profess. And here it is, ready? It's right there in verse, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And whenever you hear Shema, you'll find it many, many times. In fact, over in chapter 5 right there, I mean, he'll say it over and over again, chapter 5, verse 1. This is when he initially said it. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments. Here uh, in verse 1 of chapter 6, he said, this is the commandment. And then the statutes and the judgments. Verse 4 of chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, our God is not seen, 
our God is heard. That's why this book is so precious to us. That's why you should treasure it. Or as David would say, you know what? We don't listen to the counsel of the world, but we meditate on the word of God. Richly, day and night. And as you do that, you'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season. Leaf never withers, and whatever we do, we prosper. Why? Because we're building our lives on the word of God, because we've heard him speak. And what is our confession? What is it that we profess? What is it that we attest to? What is our central confession? It's, it's a central confession that the Israelites had. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In fact, what's fascinating in the Hebrew, you have Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. There's no linking verb there. So what does that mean? Well, because there's an omission of a linking verb, which we prefer in English, all those who love diagramming sentences will just love this, right? Amen. All the students said we're glad we're on summer break. When there's no linking verb, there's confusion. Well, what's the meaning of the sentence then if there's no linking verb? Well, because of that, you, you may have some different meanings conveyed by your English translation even today. In fact, Moses could be saying three things, three things separately. He might be saying, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. Or he might be saying, the Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. Or he might be saying, the Lord is our God, and he's the Lord alone. Well, which one is it? Is he saying Three things separately, or is he saying three things at once? And whichever translation you take, essentially the meaning is the same, and it's clear. Yahweh is the sole object of Israel's worship, their allegiance, and their affection. And every single one of those statements is true and appropriate in its proper context. And so what you may actually have here is not an accident, but something that's intentional because every word of God is inspired by the Spirit. And God wants to convey maybe all three of those truths at one time. That the Lord is Israel's God. That the Lord is one God. And that the Lord, He alone, is the only God. All three of those things. And actually, we would say, yay and amen. I mean, we would agree, Yahweh is God. We better agree with that because Jesus said that. In fact, when he said it, they didn't like that he said it. And they wanted to pick up stones and stone him because they considered that blasphemy. The profession, Jehovah, Yahweh, is the true, one true God. They wanted to kill Jesus for that. Because he professed to be God. Here Moses is saying, listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Our God, Yahweh, is the Lord. And they confessed it. I mean, this is why Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. I mean, Moses came and said, God says, Yahweh says, Jehovah says, right, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I don't think so. I kind of like my building projects. Now get back to work. And by the way, pick up some straw on your own. And God had to demonstrate his sovereignty, his power over all the deities that the Egyptians worshipped. All of those plagues were a, a recognition that God was the one true God. Not those demigods that they worshipped. Their little idols. And he demonstrated that. But even more important than that, God demonstrated that he was a person, not a force. Because he wanted to have fellowship with this people. He wanted them to go out to a mountain and commune with him. And that's the God that, that we worship and we serve. 
He's a God who's actually trying to knock on some hearts to say, will you open the door and let me in so I can have fellowship with you? That's the God that we worship. And he is the one true God. But not only that, he's our God. This was their confession. This is our God, the one who has summoned us. He, he is one. He's unique. He's exclusive. There's none other. He, he, he is in his wholeness one. Now, there are many deities in the nations that surrounded them. But, but the affirmation here is, is probably something unique about leading towards the understanding of the Trinity. Over in Genesis, you do know that it says there that God created the heavens and the earth. And we have the picture there of the spirit that broods over the waters. Remember, Moses wrote that book too, the first one. All the way, Genesis through Deuteronomy are the books of the Torah, the word of Moses that was passed down. We don't know the fullness of how the Trinity worked to create all things until you read in the New Testament where you see Jesus is the one who, who brought all things into being. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, Paul would affirm that truth. Or John would say in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, was, was God and nothing came into being but by Him. Anything that exists came into being because Jesus said so. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You have these pictures, and yet the confession here that the Lord is one, our understanding of the Trinity is, is for more, more fully developed even now, but what we realize is God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they work together. They work in harmony. They work together to create things and to reveal things and, and to redeem things, and we celebrate that today. In fact, it's that oneness that we are supposed to embody as His people. The Lord, He is Lord alone. There is no other. Against all those pagan gods, not only in Israel's day, but even in our day. All the people that surrounded Israel, they had their own deity, their regional deity. Many people around us, your neighbors have their own God. It isn't just some idol, sometimes it's mammon. Because money is one major God in this world today. You know, polytheism is the belief in many gods. They affirmed monotheism. You see, monotheism says there is only one true God. Now, Christianity is unique in the sense of monotheism because we believe that the one true God exists in three persons. But our culture doesn't like that, the exclusivity of our God and the exclusivity of His salvation. They, they believe that there's one God in the center all of mankind, kind of like a wheel or on the tire. And then all the spokes that come from man go to the same one, one God. That's not true. That's not possible. There's too many contradictions for that to be true. Now, the one God who is has spoken and he has revealed exclusively that he alone is God. That he alone is the one who has brought redemption. And so we have to make our confession today. Do we believe that to be true? Do we believe there is one true God? Because understand this, what Paul says in Philippians. One day, everyone will confess. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess what? That Jesus is Lord. Everyone will, will confess it at some point. If you don't want to confess it today, you will at some point. But see, the invitation is to confess it today. To make that not just the confession, to make it my confession of faith. I believe this is true. And there's an, a blessing when you walk by faith and place your faith and trust in this one true God. 
And it's very simple. This is the amazing thing. God doesn't force himself upon us. He doesn't force you and I to, to say this and to believe it. It's a choice we all make. But trust me, we will make that one day and acknowledge that he is the sovereign God who made all things and sent his son to be the Savior. The great God, the one true God that we confess has a commandment that we have to obey. It's here in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. We just sang that passage of scripture a few moments ago. We, we are to love him. Why? Why is it commanded that we love him? Well, that's the only proper response if he's the only one true God. Your existence is possible today because of the one true God. Our redemption is possible only because of the one true Savior. Our, our, our daily living is empowered by his spirit each and every day. What, what, what other response would we have to him? There's only one command that he actually has for us that we are to be faithful and loyal in our duty to him. And it's just simply this, just to love him with all of our being. God wanted the complete, wholehearted love of his people. It's what God has always wanted. In fact, what's fascinating is when you go over to, to chapter 8, it's interesting what Moses would say to the people. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all these ways 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commands or not. You see, the trials and circumstances of life that they experienced was exposing them, revealing them. What does the trials and circumstances of my life reveal? Does it reveal that in my heart, I love the one true God above all things. This is the supreme commandment. Jesus answered that question when the lawyers queried him and said, what's the greatest commandment? He says, you know what it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is just like it. They, they sum up the two tables that, uh, of the law, those first five commandments. And then the second five, uh, to, to love God supremely. That there's only one true God and you're not to have any others. And don't cut out any idols and watch your words. Why? Because when we take and profess the, the name of the one true God... We want to be careful what we say about him. And, and we, we honor his day. We gather for worship to celebrate him and, and to acknowledge corporately that there is one true God that we all collectively worship together. And, and we appreciate and we honor our fathers and mothers because they're the ones that God has given the responsibility to teach us about the one true God. And, and then we don't kill people because they're made in the image of God. They have value and worth and, and we keep our vows because a covenant is a reflection of the relationship that, that he has with us, whether he betrothed himself to Israel or Jesus is our bridegroom. And, and then we don't cheat and lie and steal and all those things or covet uh, from others because we realize that that God's the giver and the provider and he knows what I need and I want him supremely I don't want to covet something in this world it doesn't compare to my God I mean I either love God or I love mammon right you see but there's not a laundry list of rules here really there's just one commandment it's not legalism that says I have to do this it's love which says I want to do this why because the one true God loved me first the one true God provided redemption for me, and wooed me to himself with love. 
This is what we've lost today is, is a realization that, that love is the motivating force here. In fact, it's not you know, a shock to us, frankly, because even when you go over to the book of Revelation and you read about the seven churches in Revelation and just that first church, the mega church that was there in Ephesus and, and God speaks to them and, and, and they've done some great things, but he says, you know, I have one thing against you. You know what that is? You've fallen from your first love. And so you need to, to love again. And, and, and because you love again, that's the reason why you do what you do. It's easy, easy to get caught up in the doing and, and forget the love. That's the motivating force of why we do what we do. And that's just a simple commandment that the one true God for, has for you and for me. Now, that requires a great commitment on our part. And our commitment is this, that we love him with our whole being, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. That, that our whole being, everything that you are, everything that I am, is committed to him, loyal to him. Because we realize he is our God and he has made us his people. And he demands exclusiveness. He demands not half-heartedness. He wants all of us, no division in, in our allegiance to him. He wants that this morning from you and from me. My emotions, my strength, my mind, my energy, my self-consciousness, everything about me with all that I am committed to him and all that he is. And, and as I do that, it fleshes itself out in a myriad of ways. The key to it is what he says here in verse 6, that this law has to be written first, not on stone tablets, but in order for this to happen, it has to be internalized into your heart and my heart this morning. It's internalized. That's why this book is so precious to me, because I realize I hear the one true God speak, and I realize what he is commanding me to do to, as, a, as a God-fearer, to reverence him, to love him. And as I love him, I take his word because I value who he is and what he's done for me in Christ Jesus. And I internalize that word, and I meditate on it. And as I do that, it's his spirit that enables me to, to flesh out that faith. Where do I flesh it out? I mean, I, I flesh it out teaching this diligently to my children. I, I teach them to walk in the way. I have the responsibility. Moms and dad, you have that responsibility. In fact, earlier in chapter 6, I believe it's even the influence of grandmas and grandpas that have that responsibility. Multiple generations of faithfulness just saying, this is the God that we serve and we love him. In fact, that's the reason we serve him. It's because we love him. In fact, we love him because he first loved us. And so this commitment is evident in our lives. And that commitment is something that we should flesh out each and every day. Not just when we're in our homes, when we're sitting in our house, but even when we're rising up and walking in the way. When we lie down, when we rise up, we bind this word on our hands and, and on the frontlets of our forehead. In other words, yes, for them, they had phylacteries and they had those, that was their reminder. They had this written on scrolls, little tiny pieces of paper, and, and they said their prayers, but it's more than just perfunctory. It's it just stop and think. Everything that you and I do with our hands and we find ourselves doing, we should do not as unto man, but as unto who? The Lord. And the things that I meditate on, the things that I think about, the direction, the decisions I may make in life about where to go to school and whom to marry and what, what vocation to answer to and, and the decisions I make, what should be guiding and directing my thinking? The one true God. Who speaks to me through the one word. 
who will change my life and transform my life if I will listen to him and be committed to him and how I am to live. We write them on the doorposts of our home and on our gates. Now, literally, that doesn't mean you have to go home today and get you some stencils and write the word of God on the walls in your home. You can do that. That's fine. The point is this. There should be an aroma, a fragrance in your home and my home that when people come, they don't have to question or wonder who the one true God is. That they know these people, they fear God. They love Jesus. They love the Lord. And it should just be evident wafting out of our homes as we open up the doors or the gates to our home and people come. They should see. Now, do you want to put, you know, Bible passages on the walls? That's fine. You can do that. But it's more important that it's internalized in your heart and that you and I flesh it out in our daily living and that our children see that in our lives. By the way, moms and dads, don't try to teach it if it's not real inside. It won't be as effective. It's almost like there's a PVC pipe that comes from my heart to the heart of my kids. And it's internalized here, and then it pours through that pipe into their hearts. That's the picture. And, and, and for that to happen, we have to first confess there is one true God. And we, his name is Jehovah, or Jesus, as we, he has revealed himself now. And our faith rests in Him. Why? Because you see, He's the one who offered Himself as the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. He's the one who died, was buried, and rose again. He's the one, one day, who will judge all men. And so you have to make that decision today. Whom will you serve? Now see, the significance of this is even more profound when you come to to the New Testament for the people of God. After you have made this profession, after you have obeyed the great commandment, after you have made the great commitment, you come over and you discover, what is it that Jesus said? Turn with me over to John chapter 17. You can write this in the margin of your Bible back there where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But John chapter 17, I just want you to hear what Jesus prayed, not just for himself, but for you this morning. He prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples, he prayed for all believers here in John chapter 17, one of the last prayers that he prayed. And and as he prayed this prayer, just hear and understand, the significance of him being one is a testimony that we bear or fail to bear to the world around us. And this is significant this morning. If we really are going to be honest and examine ourselves. John chapter 17, verse 20. Listen to what Jesus said. Now, he's already prayed for himself in the first couple verses, 1 through 5. Then he he prays for the disciples from verse 6 down to verse 19. But here in verse 20, he says this. I do not pray just for these alone. He's just prayed for the disciples. I'm not praying just for them, but for, notice this, also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, who is that? Well, that's me. I know I have. I've heard their word right here. They gave me an eyewitness testimony. And they've recorded, it's recorded for you and for me. How about you? Is is he praying for you? Because see, he's praying for those who will believe in him. In fact, what is his prayer for those who will believe? That they all, notice this in verse 21, may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. And that they also may be one in us. And that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. That they may be one just as we are one. You see, the significance of the unity, the oneness of God is profound in this way. Right now, you and I are either bearing witness to it or we're not. 
We, as we pursue unity in the body, which is what he prayed for, we have a witness that we relate to the world that our oneness is a reflection of his oneness. Because we got a unique faith, a strange faith to a lot of people. We'll hit it in two weeks. Next week we talk about God is sovereign, the one true God who reigns and rules over all things. But in two weeks we'll focus on the trinity of God, the triunity. And it's strange to people what we believe. And that he speaks to us an authoritative word. And as we are pilgrims walking through this world, it's going to sound strange to them. But it's not to you and me because it's the words of the one true God who has spoken to us. And we have a witness that we testify to them of our love for him. By this, they'll know that we love him if we love one another. And why do we love one another? Because we're supposed to be one. That means, listen, when we serve the Lord, if there's something that's hindering us in our ministry and our service together, we need to get that right. That's why the altar's here all the time to come and pray. And to say, I need to live in a particular way with my brothers and sisters as we serve the one true God. We really do need to be one. It would make us far more effective. Amen? I mean, there's one spirit who dwells within us who enables us to do that work. Hopefully we're living for one purpose. Not ours, but what the Father wants to have happen. And what's that? He wants to see many gathered around his throne. Made in his image. Remade in the image of Christ. If I'm allowing something to hinder me to serve the Lord, to allow that to be a stumbling block and, and because of my, listen, my pride, my unwillingness to say, you know what, I was wrong. My unwillingness to experience grace or share it with someone else, shame on us. Beloved, we bear a witness and a testimony. If anyone should be laboring as a great united force, it's not some union out there. It's the people of God. Why? Because our God is one. And we bear witness and testimony of that, not just with our lips, but with our lives. And it is a testimony to the world when they see him working in us and through us, frankly, despite us sometimes. Amen. That should be our heartbeat, our passion. Jesus prayed for that. His prayer, not only that we would be one, that we would be one with him and with the Father. And when we're not, our testimony betrays the God that we profess with our lips. Now, the secret to all that is love. You can't love the world and love the Father. You've got to make a choice. 1 John chapter 2, he's crystal clear. Love is, is, is the key in all of this. If, if my love is misfocused, I won't love God as, we, as I ought to. In fact, this is the scary thing over in uh, first, 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's a warning even there to Timothy that an apostasy is going to come. In fact, that apostasy will be such that men will have the appearance of religion, of godliness. They'll have that appearance, but they'll have no power within them. Why? Well, because they don't love God. They love self. They love money. They love pleasures. Me, my stuff, the stuff I can get. And because of that love for that, they will not have power. They will not have the spirit dwelling within them. And that's the scary thing. You see, there's a time that we have to examine our hearts. God is commanding everyone to love him and, and to love him supremely. It's the highest, greatest commandment. It's the duty of those who profess him as the one true God to live that way. We do that when he is our greatest passion. In fact, this week, even as we'll prepare ourselves next week, Call to a solemn assembly. It's a realization that, you know what? We, we need revival. We need renewal in our land. 
judgment always begins right here at the house of God. Hopefully you picked up one of these in, in Sunday school this morning. If you didn't, we'll have them out as you leave this morning. They're on the tables by the TVs. And, and you can pick one up and just slip it in your Bible. But I want you to pull it out first thing in the morning. Because what it is, is just simply the Word of God. And it's reading the Word and examining my heart so that I might pursue purity in life, in my thoughts, in my attitudes, in my relationships, in my communication, in the things that I do, in, in, in all of my uh, just pursuing godliness and holiness. And each day it's just reading the word and just reflecting on what I've read and asking myself some penetrating questions. Why? Because God's after your heart and my heart. And when our hearts are made right, then we might be right living the way we ought. And then we'll have something really to say to the community around us. In fact, what they'll see is something changed in your life and my life. And they'll begin to inquire, man, what's going on? And you just say, well, you know, it's the one true God. And I want to live right for him. Can I tell you about him?